Hello and welcome to this episode of Entertainment Rebooted. Today, I am sitting down with my friend Alex Henry to talk about some up-and-coming rap artists. My friend Natalie is going to be telling us about the new Disney movie, Disenchanted. But first, before all that, I'll be sitting down with Logan Buchanan and Zion to talk about the best movies of 2022. So, Logan, why don't you get us started? Yeah, I would love to. My first movie that I wanted to talk about was The Adams Project. It was released on March 9th, 2022 to stream on Netflix, uh, directed by Sean Levy and starred Ryan Reynolds, Mark Ruffalo, and Walker Scobell in a science fiction time travel kind of flick. Uh, Ryan Reynolds plays an older version of Adam, the like main character, uh, who travels back in time and needs help from the younger version of himself, played by Walker Scobell, uh, to get like back to the back to the future. Along their journey, they also meet up with Adam's uh, long-lost father, played by Mark Ruffalo, the inventor of time travel itself. It's a crazy movie. It's a funny movie. I mean, I w- I'm not one that usually laughs like if I'm by myself watching something, mm-hmm. and this movie cracked me up a bunch. I really liked it. Um, to see one, Ryan Reynolds and Mark Ruffalo are phenomenal actors, and we don't get to see a whole lot of Mark Ruffalo a lot, besides like Zodiac and uh, Shutter Island. He's not in a whole lot of stuff anymore besides the Marvel movies, so it was nice to see him shine. Um, and I wanted to shine light specifically on Walker Scobell because he's going to be uh, Percy in the new Percy Jackson series, I believe, not movie. And I'm really excited for him because he just seems like one of those up-and-coming actors that we're just going to see headline and A-list movie after movie after movie. Definite Oscar winner in the near future. So the next one I want to talk about was The Black Phone. It was released on uh, June 24th, 2022 in theaters, and then it was later released on HBO Max. Um, I wasn't really sure how I was going to like The Black Phone just because it looked like kind of a C-tier horror movie. It did. I agree with you on that. It was phenomenal. Uh, Okay. (laughs) So it primarily starred Ethan Hawke and Mason, uh, I believe, Thames. Uh, he played a young baseball player named Finney, living in a town where children are rapidly getting kidnapped and going missing by a man named The Grabber, who is played by Ethan Hawke. He actually eventually kidnaps Finney and locks him up away from the public, away from the police, until Finney finds the titled Black Phone, which uses which he uses to then help him plan like different escape routes, uh, each to their different success or failures. And it's just really cool to see him like outsmart and outplay The Grabber. Now, uh, let me ask you, what kind of movie, or what kind of person would you recommend this movie to? Um, anyone who likes psychological horror more than like slashers it kind of reminded me of hush which came out a long time ago on netflix um but to finish off my little thing i I am a comic book nerd at heart so i couldn't i couldn't not mention the batman it released on march 4th 2022 in theaters and then released on hbo max Uh, the batman hosts a number of a-list actors and actresses such as robert pattinson uh, zoe kravitz and paul dano robert pattinson return robert pattinson plays Batman, who returns to the dark and gritty detective that he should always be, in my opinion. I think (laughs) we kind of lost the detective side of Batman, and when the world's greatest detective isn't actually solving crimes, he's just beating people up, I think we're losing a very key aspect of the character. And to see Robert Pattinson, a man who I've always rooted for ever since he was in uh, Twilight, his credibility is now boosted because of this movie, and they really let him shine. Everything down from the score to the cinematography to when the actors and actresses aren't talking versus they are talking, I think is very good storytelling. And I just thought it was like 
it was like taking a comic book and just putting it onto the screen, which I feel like some super movies don't do, and some superhero movies do astoundingly well like this one uh, actually i know that you guys have uh different movies than what i have so i'm really interested to hear what you and zion have to say about your selected movies of course. all right my first one i had to, i had to put this in there like come on now dr strange in the multiverse of madness i mean it's dr Str- well okay it's scholar which in the multiverse <laughs> of madness let's be honest here but uh, the movie did come out in may 6 2022 so the movie is pg-13 and it's two hours and six minutes but like a summary of it is dr strange teams up with a mysterious teenage girl from his dreams who can travel across multiverses to battle multiple threats including other universe versions of himself which threaten to wipe out millions across the multiverse my thoughts elizabeth olsen she did phenomenal Seeing as she started off with WandaVision and seeing as like how her story progressed and actually her going through all of the stages of grief and like them picturing it in different episodes and like just seeing her fluctuate with her, she did phenomenal. And then Benedict <laughs> Cumberbatch, he did phenomenal as well. I feel like even with all the Marvel movies he has been in, he's always done a phenomenal acting just going with it. He loves it. And I love him for it. Now for my next one is very controversial because a lot of people really don't like it, but I kind of liked it. Um, <laughs> don't worry, darling. I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, don't be sorry, Zion. <laughs> this came out in September 23rd, 2022. Um, it is rated R and the runtime for it is two hours and three minutes. Now for the summary of it, it uh, starts in the 1950s named, well, with actor and ac- actress, Allison Jack. They live in the idol idealized community of victory, an experimental company town that houses the men who work on a top secret project while the husbands toil away, the wives get to enjoy the beauty, luxury, and the beauty of like their scenery and everything, and everything's perfectly fine until one person, Alice, starts noticing a very lot of like weird things going on and happening. And that's where it kind of starts off at. Me personally, I love the movie. I don't. I can see how people didn't like the movie with some of like the acting with it, but <laughs> it was just Harry Styles. Let's just be real. Florence Pugh. I feel like she always does an amazing job with acting. I love her as an actress. She's phenomenal with her in Black Widow. Loved her, and in Don't Worry, Darling. I think we got to see a different side of her acting career. I was not expecting the ending that I was picturing or like what it was going to go through. Even at the middle point where we got like the twist of it all, it was amazing. Was it a good movie? Yes, <laughs> but I was I had a lot of unanswered questions, which I'm highly upset about that. Now for the next one, it was Nope by Jordan Peele. Um, it is rated R. It is two hours and ten minutes, and it was released in well July twenty second, twenty twenty two. The movie was phenomenal. Ten out of ten would recommend. It's of course, it's Jordan Peele, so his movies has always been like sort of weird. You have to connect ties to. You have to look up a lot of the answers afterwards. <laughs> um, so with this movie, it's a man and his sister. They had discovered something sinister in the skies above the California horse ranch. While the owner of a nearby theme park tries to profit from the mysterious otherworldly phenomenon. It took a very, very different turn than what I thought it was going to be. And I mean, it was it was different, but I kind of liked it. But the hidden messages that they did put in it, that's what makes the movie so much better. Because even with us and Get Out, 
it had so many hidden messages that you have to research after the movie so that you understand it fully. And that's how it was with Nope. And I enjoyed it because you just never would have thought about that. I would probably say that's one of my top 10, like most definitely movies of all times. Wow. Well, you've heard about some of our favorite movies from this year. Let's talk about a very recent movie from this year with Natalie. Hello, WZIP. This is Natalie with Entertainment Rebooted, and I'm here to give you my review of the Disney Plus original Disenchanted, which dropped around Thanksgiving. Disenchanted is a direct sequel set about a decade after the 2007 movie Enchanted and stars Amy Adams, who is reprising her role as Giselle, Patrick Dempsey as Robert, James Marsden as Prince Edward, who is now King Edward, Idina Menzel as his queen Nancy, and a recast of the character Morgan, who is now played by Gabriella Baldacchino as a teenager. Now, I was ridiculously excited to see this movie, having loved the first one a lot for its cleverness, humor, catchy songs, the awesome final battle, and the very shippable Giselle and Robert. It was subversive, but not in a way that tears down the fairy tale tropes that it was trying to parody, and it became a fairy tale in its own right. Even the evil queen's henchman got free of her clutches and found his own happy ending. So when I saw the trailer, which teased a Giselle becomes a wicked stepmother plotline, I was more than intrigued, thinking that the sequel would be just as fun and memorable as the first one, despite it being a direct-to-Disney Plus release. And I'm sorry to say I was severely disappointed my first time watching it, so much so that I was worried about doing a review of it for Entertainment Rebooted without it turning into an essay of why I hated this movie. Hate is actually a strong word. I'm going to walk that back, especially after seeing it again with much lower expectations. This review will have three parts. First will be a non-spoiler section, followed by a spoiler section for our podcast version. And that will be followed by a rewrite experiment, also for the podcast, mainly because it will also have spoilers. The reason I want to try out a rewrite segment is because as a creative writing minor and a media studies major, which includes video production and somewhat touches on film, I think it's easy to critique something, but that doesn't mean very much unless you can articulate how, in your opinion, it can be made better. Besides, I also tried it a little bit in my Rings of Power reviews from the longer episodes of Entertainment Rebooted earlier in the semester, so I think that it would be a good experiment to, you know, try it again, see what happens. Okay, so going into my non-spoiler thoughts, after my second watching, I think it's a perfectly serviceable movie. The music is fine, the acting's good, and it was enjoyable enough for what it was. That said, I watched it twice, and the first time, like I said, I was severely disappointed. I'd had such high expectations coming from how great I think the first movie was, and this felt like such a miss that I was actually quite upset. I know it was a direct-to-Disney Plus sequel a decade after the original, but I was invested in Robert and Giselle's story, and I really wanted to continue to explore that. I'll go more into that in the spoiler section, but for now, let's just say that the storyline felt incredibly neglected for me as far as Giselle and Robert's relationship was concerned. Same with the Giselle and Morgan dynamic, despite it seemingly having been a major focal point of what the movie was trying to do. None of the songs were as good as the original. They were fine, again, for what they were, but they weren't as catchy when they were trying to be catchy. They weren't as emotional when they were trying to be emotional. And with the exception of Idina Menzel's song, which she slays, obviously, and Batter, none of them were particularly memorable. That's not to say that they were bad. Like I said, I think they, just like most of the movie, isn't, they're enjoyable enough. 
but they don't hold a candle to the songs in the first one. They're perfectly serviceable as musical numbers. They just could have been a lot better. In terms of story, the first one felt genuinely witty and had a strong enough foundation and core that I could literally root for two people who are currently and obviously cheating on their fiancés, who I liked, I might add. Robert and Giselle's story in chemistry was so good that I literally forgave how they let on Nancy and Edward instead of cleanly breaking it off with them like they should have. Besides that, the first movie was so close to perfection. Everyone had such growth in their characters. Tropes were lovingly turned on their heads, but not mocked too harshly. And like I said, Robert and Giselle were so shippable that most people just look past the cheating aspect entirely. It's a fairly simple plot, but it was compelling, and I swooned when Robert started to sing to Giselle because look how far they've come. It's like the song says. It's literally in the song lyrics that is playing at this moment. It just, it's perfection. Disenchanted Story, on the other hand, felt more convoluted. Like they had a lot of good ideas, and they wanted to cram them all in without knowing how to properly juggle them. Instead of scenes serving multiple purposes and advancing multiple character arcs or plot lines, we spent one scene with plot X, then the next with plot Y, and the characters are off doing their own things, so we can't really progress character arcs by having them mean meaningfully interact with each other. Because of this, certain storylines just didn't strike me as particularly important in my first watch, which, granted, the one I'm thinking of was my largest disappointment of the entire movie, so I probably was not in a position to truly get it when all my thoughts were about how much of a travesty it was and why would they do this. On the second watch, I realized what they were trying to do, but since they were juggling so many things and the characters rarely interacted with each other, and when they did, it was still only advancing one plot line without touching the rest of the through actions that the movie wanted to cram into its two-hour runtime, it just wasn't compelling for me. I could see what they wanted to do, but I don't think they pulled it off because they had to devote time to so many things that they just couldn't explore anything specific particularly well. Take Nathaniel's arc in the first movie. This was done alongside his and Edward's main goal of trying to find Giselle, albeit for different reasons. But these scenes typically advanced both the plot as well as Nathaniel's character arc. So when he redeemed himself at the end and got his happy ending, it felt deserved. All of their character arcs were intertwined with the one main plot, and so they were all accomplished tightly at the same time. Disenchanted, I thought that it had great ideas. I thought that there were even some that I actually quite liked, even loved. But I thought that they either weren't explored enough to be meaningful, or they were executed in a way that I found particularly disenchanting. The characters. Um, I hated what direction they went with the characters. Again, though, a second watching with lowered expectations was nowhere near as upsetting as the first watch, where I thought it would be near Enchanted's level of quality. Couple characters, I will say who in the spoiler section for the podcast, were completely different people for about two-thirds of the runtime, and surprisingly, despite what the trailers might make it seem, I'm not talking about Giselle when I say this. Amy Adams clearly had fun with the role, and like the other actors, I think she did a really good job. I do wish they had a better script, but again, for being its own thing, Disenchanted is fine. I liked the characters more or less at the beginning and at the end. I just found the entire middle to be a bit off. 
The fact that they separated the characters was probably a large reason why. Would I recommend it? As I said, I think it can be perfectly enjoyable if you want to watch it as its own thing without too much attachment to the spectacular first movie. But if you go in expecting Disenchanted to be half as good as Enchanted, you'll be disappointed. That said, the cast does a good job. The songs are not fantastic, but they're all right. And if you can get past the convoluted separate plots the movie tries to juggle, it can be a nice choice for a family movie night. I wish I could recommend it wholeheartedly, but my feelings toward it have mellowed slightly on the second watch, and I can recommend it more now than I could immediately after I had excitedly demanded that my parents watch it with me because it looked so good. Again, keep your expectations lower. You'll be fine. All right, now for the spoiler section, listeners of the podcast, you have been warned if you haven't seen it yet um, and want to not be spoiled, now might be a good time to stop, watch it, and then come back because, you know, you're, you're going to want to hear what I have to say. Definitely. What I have to say is very important, guys. Trust me. Okay, so Disenchanted begins with Pip the Chipmunk telling two little chipmunks, which are his kids maybe? I, I didn't know he had kids and it's not overtly said, but he's putting them to bed and reading them stories, so I assume that they're his kids. There's no wife that we see, but oh well, that's not really that important. Um, they tongue-in-cheek say that nothing ever happens to people after Happily Ever After. They get married and that's it. Nothing ever happens to you again. Pip corrects this and tells them how Giselle and Robert had a baby named Sophia, got tired all the time, presumably from caring for Sophia, felt that their Manhattan apartment got too cramped, again, because of the baby, probably, and how Morgan became the edgy teenager stereotype. They're clearly feeling disenchanted, but I'm bum bum. Then they decide to move to the suburbs, a place called Monroeville that Giselle thinks is similar enough to Andalasia to give them their happily ever after. They've got this nice castle-looking house that they call a fixer-upper and I call a fire hazard. Literally, Morgan flips on a light switch and her room catches on fire, burning up all her clothes. Morgan hates it here because she didn't want to leave New York, but apart from some snide comments and sarcastic comments here and there, her requests for Giselle to just leave her alone so she can assimilate to her new life on her own is fairly reasonable, actually. Giselle laments that she never sings the right songs to Morgan anymore and that their relationship is suffering. And so she does the reasonable thing of setting up the entire booth at Morgan's school to campaign for Morgan to be declared the Princess of Monroe Fest, which is a festival that the suburb queen bee Malvina Monroe basically runs and that her son wins every year. Obviously not because of cheating, mind you. This is, this is a very secure election here. There is there is no cheating at all. She has assured you of such. Giselle thinks that since everybody knows princesses, people will know Morgan, and she'll have more friends, and she'll be happy. Morgan is obviously mortified and quite angry that Giselle has ignored her reasonable requests to let herself, Morgan, assimilate on her own terms. So she pieces off to New York for most of the day and turns her phone off which is a bad idea. Never turn your phone off, kids. Robert is obviously not pleased at all by this. She is definitely going to be grounded. And when Morgan eventually returns, they get into a fight, and Morgan declares that Giselle isn't her mother, 
She's her stepmother, and that's all she'll ever be. Then she storms off to her room, and Giselle is obviously crushed. Despite Morgan having called her mom throughout the rest of the movie up to this point, this hits her pretty hard, and she doesn't interpret it as Morgan simply lashing out, which is what I think she was doing. This doesn't happen in fairy tales, so she uses the Andalasian wishing wand that Nancy and Edward gave baby Sophia, who's also their goddaughter, to wish that they all had a fairy tale life. Of course, this results in Monroeville turning into Monrolasia, a land of magic where everybody sings and dances through the streets, dragons and giants terrorize people, appliances sing, and Queen Bee Malvina turns into an actual queen and has powers and stuff. Giselle loves this until she starts to turn into a wicked stepmother to Morgan, who has now apparently turned into a happy, sweet Cinderella, essentially. But that's not the only issue. Apparently, the wand pulls its magic from Andalasia, so if Giselle doesn't unwish her wish by midnight, Andalasia dies and her wish is permanent. However, Malvina discovers the wand and makes her evil minion steal it from Giselle. And, therefore, Giselle cannot unwish the wish until she gets it back. Where's Robert? Oh, out hunting dragons. Whatever. Not like he's important or anything. More on him later. Giselle falls further and further into wickedness, shredding Morgan's dress and forbidding her to go to the ball. Shocker. Of course she does. In a moment of lucidity, however, she bids Morgan to save them by going to Andalasia via a magic portal in their backyard and shoves her down a well. Evil Giselle returns and obviously is pleased by this because, you know, pushing princesses down a well is a tried-and-true method for you know, wicked people in the Enchanted series. She then decides that she wants to be queen, so she challenges Malvina for the crown. Morgan arrives in Andalasia, thankfully with her own personality again, and runs into Nancy and Edward, who confirm that, yes, Andalasia is dying because all of their magic is being sucked away to the real world, and since literally everything in Andalasia is magic, yeah. But they come up with the idea of returning Giselle to sanity by using the magic of memories to remind her of who she is. Nancy sings, Edward stays behind, they return to New York, the suburbs, not the city, and track down Giselle at the ball. Giselle duels the queen, wins, but is then distracted by Andalasia wrecking the party, literally, because vines sprout out of the ground and break things and her house comes up at some point from the first one. Um, Nancy, Morgan, Robert, and Malvina's son, Tyson, who is Morgan's Prince Charming, essentially. They all run in, begging her to stop. Morgan trips and sends her memory tree, which is where all the memories she wants to use to save Giselle are stored. And it floats over to Giselle, who catches it and then promptly shreds it, Cersei Lannister style. It works anyway, thankfully. And Giselle returns to sanity, only to still not be able to make the wish because Malvina has decided that, you know what, this vine decor is kind of working for her. She likes Monralasia, and she's going to kill Morgan if Giselle gets rid of it. Giselle drops the wand, not able to risk Morgan's life, and Malvina breaks the wand. Robert and Tyson work out that if they stop the giant clock from striking midnight, they can delay the spell becoming permanent and Giselle embraces Morgan as a daughter of Andalasia as her daughter, and therefore 
Morgan is able to use the wand's magic so she can use the broken wand and undo everything, apparently. Giselle is too weak at this point to do it because since she is Andalasian, she apparently dies with the magic, even though she's not been to Andalasia in a decade. I guess it's based on biology, you know, who is okay because Nancy seems kind of fine since she wasn't born in Andalasia. She just lives there. But this is... This is the rule for everybody, I guess, except for Morgan, because she's Andalasian in name only, but she can use the wand. Anyway, the day is saved. Everyone and everything is returned to normal, and they make themselves a happily ever after in Monroeville, after all. The story, as I said before, I think it's a little too convoluted for my liking, or at the least, not well organized to where they could multitask everything to truly explore every conflict that they were bringing up. Too much was happening, and too much of it was more or less unrelated to everything else that was happening, which hurts the investment that I had in all of it. I'd rather have one or two fully realized ideas than have someone toss a bunch of ideas against the wall to see what sticks. We had the plot where Giselle and Morgan's relationship is strained, which ties in loosely to the plot of Giselle turning into a wicked stepmother, except not really because Morgan is Cinderella at that point, not herself. And most of Giselle struggling with that isn't even while interacting with Morgan. She just starts being vain and mean, even when Morgan isn't around. We had the plot with Robert's adventuring, which ties into literally nothing and is barely developed. Again, more on that later. We, we will get to Robert. We will get to him most definitely. We had the plot about Andalasia dying, which was barely there, but took the place of the urgency that we would have had with Giselle potentially being an evil stepmother forever and ruining her relationship with Morgan and potentially Robert as well, because, you know, he probably wouldn't be too happy about her being awful to Morgan. And finally, we had the evil queen versus Giselle plotline, which was cool and fun, but it took away from the Morgan and Giselle plotline, which is, I think, for this movie, probably more important. Instead of trying to further multiple of these ideas within the same scenes, they take turns, which limits the development of all of them and negatively impacts the flow and cohesiveness of the story of the movie. For the songs, I think they were under the impression they being the composers, the writers, the producers, you know, whoever was in charge of making this movie. I think they were under the impression that the first movie didn't have enough songs, which is not correct, in my opinion. So they tried to shoehorn in as many songs as possible. Again, the songs weren't bad, and I wouldn't even say that they're necessarily misplaced for a musical, but I think they're definitely misplaced for a sequel to Enchanted. I felt that they were trying to go more of the musical route, which it does and doesn't make sense. Obviously for the fantasy stuff it does because they, they sing everywhere, that is established. But it comes at the expense of previous, previous character growth and or established personality, as well as sometimes a little bit of tone where it's, oh, they're, just, they're starting to sing now. Okay, cool. We have Andalasia, the opening song, it's a fairy tale esque whimsical melody, kind of like one of those old timey Disney movies that had this like choral sound at the very beginning. Um, we had the second song, even more enchanted, performed by Giselle when they arrive at their new home. 
The Magic of Andalasia, performed by Edward and Nancy when they give Sophia and Giselle the wand. Fairy Tale Life, performed by Giselle when making her wish. Another version of Fairy Tale Life, performed by Giselle, Morgan, and Robert after the wish and after everything turns all fantasy like. Perfect, performed by Morgan and some townspeople. It's Morgan's I Want song because, again, she's Cinderella. She's a Disney princess now, so she gets an I Want song. Batter, which is performed by Giselle and Malvina as they battle for evil dominance. Love Power, which is performed by Nancy as her and Morgan travel back to reality. The reprise of Love Power, which is performed by Giselle. She encourages Morgan to make the wish. And finally, we have the finale version of Even More Enchanted, performed by Giselle at the end. These songs are okay, but like I said, I don't think they really have the magic and emotional connection to the plot that the first movie soundtrack had. Not that they're entirely unconnected to the plot, but less so than in the original. The first one matched the mood, themes, plot points better to show the change from beginning to end. Well, these songs feel more like someone decided it was time for another song, so they put one in. It felt less real, less organic somehow. And while that was kind of the point, given, you know, it, reality turned into a fantasy, so it's going to feel more like a fantasy. It just didn't feel as grounded to me, which hurt my enjoyment investment for them. Again, they're fine, but they're not anywhere near the level of the first movie. Onto the characters, um, Giselle, Amy Adams did a great job, like I said. Her switch between evil stepmother and sweet, innocent Giselle is very entertaining. I am sure she had a lot of fun with that. As somebody who does a bit of acting myself, that does seem like it would be kind of fun to do. Her voice is great, as usual. However, I think that it is a little strange that Giselle, as a person, her personality does not seem to have changed nearly at all in the 10 or so years that she's lived in Manhattan, it actually seems like it's regressed a little bit from where she was at the end of the first movie. She doesn't understand sarcasm. She doesn't understand passive aggressiveness, even when it is obvious to everyone else. She doesn't seem to really understand sadness, anger, etc. Like, she does at some point, but she's still this, like, really perky, optimistic, to a fault kind of person where she's like, oh, you're, you know what? I'm going to sing to you and everything will be better. But she still sings and dances around, which, you know, a bit of that is fine. A bit of cartoonishness would be expected from her. But a big thing about the end of the first movie was how she'd more or less adopted with her choice of dress for the ball being more modern, even when she would have had the opportunity to dress more fantastical without anybody batting an eye because that's what everybody else was dressed like. She actually was the odd one out because her dress was more modern than everybody else's. And she didn't sing upon reuniting with Edward, though that could also be a part because she moved on to Robert already. So she, she wasn't feeling the love, so to say. I think they should have kept her wonder and optimism about her. And she can absolutely sing on occasion, but maybe not as much. Have her struggle with her desire for things to be like a fairy tale. An understandable desire, even from someone not from Andalasia. But keep her maturity that she found in the last movie. Speaking of things to keep, Giselle's fashion boutique. Nothing ever happens with that. And Morgan having no clothes is even an issue at some point. 
and it kind of shouldn't be for someone who can make dresses out of curtains and rugs. Like that's a pretty useful skill to have when your wardrobe gets caught on fire by faulty electricity wiring. So, I mean, having a stepmom that can literally make a dress out of any fabric whatsoever would actually be kind of helpful, but nope. Nope, she just borrows some of Giselle's clothes. Because I guess, you know, she has to wear this super flowery thing that all the people at school hate. Robert. What did they do to my boy Robert? He was fine at the beginning. He was fine at the end. But in the middle, he was a completely different person and barely interacted with Giselle or Morgan at all for the majority of the runtime, which makes no sense because they're literally his family. So having him run off on his family for like half the movie just did not feel right to me at all. I get they were trying to make him like this, you know, fairy tale stereotype like you know adventure seeking swashbuckling hero wannabe kind of thing no no that's more edward than robert and i just it did not sit well with me i thought it was actually a crime his and giselle's relationship was such a large reason for my investment in the movie so seeing them not really interact for you know the the meat of the plot kind of killed the mood for me he comes back in time for the final battle, but other than that, he has nothing to do with the main plot at all. He just spends all his time fighting dragons and giants and stuff, and not even doing it particularly well. What they were trying to do, I think, was set up the struggle that Robert was feeling inadequate, which was set up by Edward's comments in the beginning about how dull and tragic it would be to be him, his fantasy comments about proving his metal... You know, that's like one of the first things he says after everything turns fantasy. Robert's all like, I'm going to go out and then prove my mettle, prove my worth. And I will, I will then come back to you, to my family at the end of the day. And it's like, okay, so that, that kind of struck me. He's like, I've got to prove my worth. I'm thinking that could be maybe that's the whole thing. And it kind of relates to, you know, his depression on the train and his dissatisfaction with his life a little bit there he probably feels like he's a little inadequate and his comment at the end about how you know i was like i've hung up my sword edward i'm good i'm actually not like i don't need to be like you that spoke to me that's like that is his like understanding that he is fine the way he is except i didn't get it at all during my first watch and neither did my friend until i expressed the theory to her and then she was on board she's like oh that makes sense but i didn't think about that until you said it cool i am not alone then <laughs> i think the reason i didn't get it at first was that they didn't use the scenes where he was interacting with giselle and morgan to show any doubt in his role as a husband a father or a hero in general and again, he barely interacted with his family to explore that struggle. Then they had so many plots and characters to juggle separately that he didn't really have much of the runtime dedicated to fleshing out this um, feeling of inadequacy and in his journey to overcome that better. On to Morgan. Please don't turn Morgan into Cinderella. I like Cinderella, but Morgan is her own person with her own experiences. And... She is unique, so I think just taking away her uniqueness and making her Cinderella is a disservice 
to her and a disservice to the movie because we've seen Cinderella. We want to see Morgan now. And from when Giselle cast the spell to when Morgan arrives in Andalasia, I don't see Morgan. Her desire of wanting to save the day, which is a little bit different than Cinderella expressed in her I Want song, is not explored any more than Robert's want is. She is Cinderella to the point that even when she is presented with a chance to save the day, Giselle pushes her into the portal instead of having Morgan jump through it of her own volition to save the day, which would have been a perfect, a perfect callback to that. Hey, I literally just sang a song about how I want there to be a day that I could save, literally. And now my stepmother, who was kind of mean to me, is saying in one of her moments of being nice to me, something's wrong. I messed up. I need you to go save the day. And that could have been a moment where she was like, maybe a little concerned and maybe thinking she would not be ready for it. This is a lot to ask, whatever. But then she can steal her courage and be like, oh, I'm going to save the day. And she can jump through it instead of being pushed through it because, you know, we've, we've already seen that too. Nice parallel, but I think it does a disservice to Morgan. Then Nancy and Edward tell Morgan what to do and she just does it. It's not like Morgan has figured out how to save the day herself. No. Um, Nancy and Edward tell her exactly what she needs to do. And, you know, that would be fine if then maybe that didn't work and Morgan had to do something that came from her. I just think that that would have been better. She's not Morgan. Because other than I want her I want song... She acts like Cinderella. She's meekly submissive and sweet and innocent. She's a cartoon. I liked that even as a teenager, Morgan wasn't entirely unreasonable. And I think that she could have kept that personality the whole time and learned self-confidence as well as to be appreciative for what she has. Edward and Nancy were so underused. Okay, fine, maybe this is just, you know... My personal wants as a fan going into this, like, I like Edward and Nancy, so I would want to see more of them, right? You know, you can't always get what you want. Fine. It's not as much of a crime as Robert and Morgan's treatment was to me, but I do really wish they were a bigger part of the movie. As it stands, they show up to give Giselle the wand, then they leave. Then they find Morgan after she falls through the portal to Andalasia and tell Morgan how to save the day. Edward stays and has no further role in the conflict. Nancy leaves with Morgan, but has no further role in the conflict either. She just kind of stands or sits around somewhere. And then, after the day is saved, they come back for a picnic or something to chat with Giselle and Robert and spar with some children with swords. They felt more like plot devices than actual characters, and so they only showed up to make a cute cameo at the end or because the plot needed them to. For Malvina, the evil queen who was the second antagonist apart from Giselle when she's, you know, her, her evil self. I like the idea of the evil queen versus wicked stepmother. We haven't seen that before. I think that is interesting. And I think that Malvina was great. I think um, Maya Rudolph did a good job with her. I just think that her character's existence muddles the plot further. And I think, like I said, for this movie and for what it seems, 
their themes were and what they were trying to do. I think the conflict of the relationship between Morgan and Giselle being strained is more important than this, oh, you know, this, you know, kind of rude, stuck up, like suburban lady became an evil queen and now I'm evil so I want to dethrone her so now we fight. I don't think that that ties into the Morgan and Giselle dynamic except for, you know, at the end when Giselle has to choose Morgan over Andalasia. But it just, mostly it just doesn't fit in. And so it further complicates the plot. It takes attention off of that um, relationship with Morgan. Instead of focusing on Giselle's struggles to keep her family together and avoid being the wicked stepmom, they introduce the secondary plot line with the second antagonist. And like I said, it just distracts from the dynamics of the family that are supposed to be the emotional core of this movie. Much like the first movie was about Giselle and Robert's relationship, this was supposed to be at the least about Giselle and Morgan's relationship, if not their entire family, Giselle, Morgan, Robert, and Sophia to some little extent because, you know, she's a baby. She doesn't really do much. Maya Rudolph did a great job, and I think the villain song was fun, but I do wish that they had found a way to make her more of an integrated part of the story they were already telling, and, you know, maybe they could do a new, completely original idea and play off of the evil stepmother wants to be overthrow the evil queen kind of thing, and you can explore that somewhere else if you really want, because like I said, I think that that's a pretty good idea. I just don't think it fits within this story that they were telling. Going into that of another reason why I don't think it really fits is because of the stakes. So this kind of goes into the Malvina wanting to, you know, keep her power and destroy Andalasia. But the problem with the complexity of the story, and I just thought of this when I was writing this review today, I think the stakes should have focused more on Giselle turning into a wicked stepmother forever, losing her personality and causing Robert to lose his wife, Nancy and Edward to lose their friend, Morgan to lose her mom's stepmom, baby Sophia not knowing who her mom truly was. I think that that is more than enough stakes. So I think making the stakes needlessly high by saying, oh, not only if we don't break this curse is Giselle going to be evil, but Andalasia is literally going to die. Everyone and everything in Andalasia is just going to be gone. That takes it off of Giselle. It distracts, it detracts from Giselle's fate and the fate of the family, turning it from a more personal conflict with personal stakes to a wider, more general conflict with wider reaching but more general stakes. Not that I don't care about Andalasia, but Giselle is the center of these movies, so I think focusing harder on how tragic her fall to evil stepmother, the antithesis of literally everything she is, would be more impactful than throwing in, oh, and, you know, in case that's enough, not enough for you, Andalasia's going to die too. No, it's enough for me. 
With this critique in mind, let us go to the rewrite where I will try to fix most, if not all, of these complaints. Songs can go where they fit organically, but there would probably be around the same number as the first movie. We begin in much the same opening as we got in the actual film, but now less time has passed. Morgan is a preteen, and Giselle and Robert have been together for roughly six or seven years. They have Sophia, who is a little older now, maybe a toddler rather than an infant, so now space is more of an issue than it would have been otherwise because Sophia is definitely going to be needing her own room soon. She can't just, you know, maybe stay in Giselle and Robert's room like maybe she could have as a baby. No, she definitely needs her own room now. So space is more of an issue. And she also is starting to get maybe more toys, bigger cribs, maybe even a bed sometime in the near future, etc. Their Manhattan apartment isn't just a bit cramped. It is completely not even a viable living option for that family anymore. We established that everything else is going relatively well though. The boutique is financially secure. Robert's practice is doing well, but the novelty of New York has begun to wear off on Giselle, as well as the novelty of her relationship with Robert and her status as a mother. She's still pretty happy with her decision to stay with Robert. She doesn't regret that, but she's getting more and more frustrated and tired from dealing with an extremely energetic Sophia Morgan, who is feeling a little left out now that there's a new, you know, baby, young child taking up a bunch of Giselle's time and having to juggle her boutique as well, despite how much she enjoys it. You didn't really have to work in Andalasia, and because of that, the work was fun. But now it feels like all she does is work, and she begins to pine for the simpler life of Andalasia. Robert picks up on this and begins to feel guilty and inadequate since he cannot give her the fantasy life that he thinks she wants. Then he stumbles across Monroeville, and it's his idea to move there, not Giselle's, as an attempt to find the closest thing to Andalasia that he could manage to return Giselle's enthusiasm for life. Morgan doesn't want to go, already feeling like her parents give Sophia all the attention. She doesn't want to leave her friends, too. Robert assures her that she could still see them. Monroeville's not that far away, after all, he still has to be able to commute to work. And he found a place that was more like a castle than a house. It'll be a new adventure. And he plays off of her child lo childhood love of the fantastical. Giselle agrees, but Morgan is a little skeptical. Being at that stage where she does still enjoy the princessy stuff, but not as much as she once had. She's growing up and living in a castle doesn't seem worth the move. But Giselle convinces her, obviously happy with the idea, and Morgan agrees because she wants to make Giselle happy now that she's paying more attention to her. What's the worst that can happen, right? Maybe life will actually get better. Maybe they're right. They move, and for a while, things are better. Giselle goes to work happy. Robert goes to work happy because of this. And Morgan is happier because the new environment reminds Giselle so much of Andalasia. They start having their grown-up girl bonding nights again. But then they get used to that as well, and things start to return to how they were before. And all three of them become unhappy. Morgan gets fed up one day when Giselle is promised to spend time with her, but grows too tired and no longer feels like doing so, and they get into a fight. 
Robert comes home, comforts both girls, feeling even more like a failure. He reassures Morgan that Giselle didn't mean to hurt her and that they both love her, and he reassures Giselle in a similar way, singing to her. Because, you know, I, I love that. I love that. The next day, Giselle meets Maya Rudolph's character in New York. She asks Giselle for help, and while Giselle is still a little disheartened, she's happy to give it. Maya Rudolph says she has a wonderful smile, calling back to the first movie when Giselle was talking to the man who stole her tiara. Giselle brushes it off, but she's pleased when the woman says that. Because Giselle helped her, she will help Giselle. She says she can make her life a fairy tale. Giselle is interested, but turns her down, saying, I kinda like my life with Robert, Sophia, and Morgan how it is. But the lady cuts her off, telling her that she wouldn't have to choose. She could keep her family, but the rest of the stuff, the sad, the sad hard stuff that's bothering her, will become more like Andalasia. Giselle is clearly tempted, but she has to catch her subway train and pick up Sophia from daycare, so she declines. Maya Rudolph tells her that if she ever changes her mind, Giselle knows where to find her. It's a little confusing, but Giselle leaves. She can't stop thinking of the woman, and she's a little spaced out when Morgan tries to tell her about her day in school, encouraged by her father's reassurances. This time, however, seeing Giselle seemingly not care about her life, she explodes, accusing Giselle of replacing her with Sophia, not loving her anymore, and for longing to go back to Andalasia and leave them. Giselle tells her that she's her mother, and she loves her, and she wants to give her a life of magic like she had in Andalasia, that she wants that for everyone. Morgan bursts that she doesn't care about Andalasia, and that Giselle is her stepmother, not her mother, and maybe that's why she loves Sophia more. Robert returns from the office to his despondent Giselle, and she asks him quietly to look after the girl, saying she's going out. Robert is concerned, asking her to talk to him about it. She goes away without addressing his pleas. Now Robert is really upset, considering if she would have been happier just marrying Edward. After all, he could give her the life that she clearly wanted, and Robert clearly can't. Giselle goes back to the place where she met Maya Rudolph, and sure enough, she's there. Giselle confirms that she will still have her family if she takes up the offer, and Maya Rudolph says she will. Giselle closes her eyes like she did before being pushed down the well, muttering, and they all lived happily ever after. She pauses, waiting, but doesn't feel anything. Nothing is different. But when she opens her eyes, the woman is gone. Feeling even worse and not wanting to worry Robert more than she had already, she goes home. The next morning, Monroeville has turned into Monrelasia, and everyone but her, Sophia, Morgan, and Robert act like they've come out of a fairy tale. Giselle is thrilled, and so is Morgan, feeling like all of her childhood desires have come to life, and getting to befriend fairies and other woodland creatures is kind of cool. Happy to see his girls happy, Robert plays along, even though he finds the whole thing kind of weird, trying to act more like he remembered Edward acting as well. Everything is fine again, but more and more, Giselle starts becoming a wicked stepmother. It starts small, Giselle asking Morgan to do her chores, you know, like parents do, nothing too skeptical about that, nothing suspicious. To watch Sophia, instead of playing with friends, which is a little worse but still not entirely unreasonable, etc, etc. But then she starts to get more cruel, purposely making messes that, you know, Morgan will have to clean up, withdrawing Sophia from daycare so that Morgan will have to take care of her more, 
She tears up Morgan's favorite clothes for disobeying her one day. And then Robert, who was trying to more or less keep the peace until now, loses it, asking what she's thinking. They fight a little, and at some point their argument, in their argument, the curse loosens a little bit. Giselle has a moment of lucidity, and she realizes what's happening, confessing her behavior to Robert. He's further hurt by what she did, seeing it as a confirmation of everything, but then seeing her fear over becoming wicked, he supports her. They go to the spot where Giselle saw the Enchantress Fairy Godmother Maya Rudolph character, but she doesn't show. So they determine to go to Andalasia and ask Nancy and Edward for help. They leave with Sophia and Morgan through the pothole and go to Andalasia. There they meet up with Nancy and Edward who tell them that they don't know who the woman was, but they'll need to find her quickly before the spell becomes permanent. They ask when that will happen and determine that since it's been a while since she wished it, the midnight deadline was out, as was the sunset on the third day kind of stuff. So they reason that it has to be when the last petal falls, asking if the witch gave Giselle a flower. Giselle says no, but then Sophia shakes her rattle, revealing that it was made in the shape of a rose. Already, two pink petals have turned black. Edward worries that she doesn't have a lot of time. Nancy and Edward agree to join them, leaving Sophia back with Edward and Nancy's children and their royal fairy caretakers. Robert tries to leave Morgan behind as well, but she follows them, getting into trouble, but being allowed to stay when rescued, since they didn't really have time to take her back at that point. Robert continues acting like Edward throughout the journey, confusing everybody, but he's not familiar with this fantasy setting, even from the theoretical knowledge that he gained from Giselle. While Giselle and Edward were the fish out of water in the last movie, Robert and Morgan take the role in this movie, more so now than ever in Monralasia. With Nancy, Edward, and Giselle trying to help guide them, while also trying to fight the curse that has its grip on Giselle. Eventually, they find the Enchantress as the last petal is turning black. Giselle is almost fully wicked, and Robert is demanding an answer of how to save his wife. But the Enchantress says it's too late. Everyone's sad, but especially Morgan, who misses Giselle and feels like she spent her last moments with her pushing her away and crying over how mean she had been in their argument and how she never got to apologize. Morgan hugs Giselle and tells her how much she loves her and Robert does the same. Robert says that he's failed her by not being enough, and Edward and Nancy tell him that Giselle chose him because she loved him. Morgan calls Giselle mom for the first time, it's the first time she's done so in this version, and Giselle begins to thaw. An act of true love has once again broken the curse. The family mends their bonds, assuring each other of their love for each other, for who they are, and how happy they are with their lives because they have each other, no matter what. Giselle apologizes to Morgan, promising to be more cognizant of her feelings and give her more attention. She apologizes to Robert, who she reassures she doesn't want to have him act like Edward because she fell in love with him for himself. By the time they go back to Monroeville, everything there is back to normal as well, and they all have a newfound respect and contentness for their lives, as hard as that life can be at times. And that about does it for my review of Disney's 2022 film Disenchanted. This is Natalie Savage bringing you another segment of Entertainment Rebooted. Stay tuned for more. Thank you so much, Natalie. Now we're going to shift over to talk with Alex about some up-and-coming rap artists. Hello, everybody. My name's Isabel, and I am sitting down with 
the DJ expert, Alex Henry, to talk about Rappers on the Rise. How are you doing today, Alex? It's going great. I appreciate you having me on entertainment. I am now spreading my reach reach to a whole new audience. You've heard me on sports. You've heard me DJ. But now you're going to hear me uh, entertain, I guess. You're a man of many hats. I do my best. Thank you. I do my best. I guess I got like the hat trick. If you know what a hat trick is, it's when you score three different times in a game. That's kind of what I'm doing here. I got DJ, I got sports, and now and I got entertainment. entertainment now I got, yeah. I got There's the, your three. I got the hat trick. That's that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So I'm kind of a, a rap novice. I listen to some rap, but I don't really know a lot about it. So I, I wanted to talk about some rap artists, but I had to call in someone who knew knew more than I do. Well, that's me. Is that what you're, is that what you're saying? Yes. No. Yes, that's you. Yeah, I mean, I, I love rap. I I, ga- I even gave it my own shot trying to make it big time in my life. Of, oh, uh, I'm familiar. Of being a rapper, you know, and, and I, I do love rap. Uh, I love all music. I really do. I, I truly think that music is just one of the best things in the world. Um, but in terms of rap, I'm ready to talk as well. I'm, I'm ready to talk. What, what are we talking about? Well, we are going to be talking about some up-and-coming rappers that we're familiar with. Yeah, up-and-coming. Uh, this, this past year. Yes. Yeah. So there's a lot. You want me to just get into it? Yeah. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay. Well, I mean, there was a lot of rap this year. You know, I'd say rap has been stale for a long time. And honestly, I still agree with that statement. I still think rap is almost stale. And let me explain. What I mean by stale, I mean that... It's been the same sound with the same artist for a while. And, you know, I think it kind of all started with, like, the trap era in 2016, um, the SoundCloud era, some might call it, you know, and that's that's just carried over. Those same artists, the same trap artists, or the same SoundCloud artists are still the same big rappers today. But now we're starting to finally see some of the young faces emerge. Not to say that we haven't seen young faces emerge since the trap era, but... Now we're seeing a bunch. We're seeing all these new faces. Uh, one one name that, you know, is a pretty big name, uh, and it was the first one on the list, Baby Keem. I mean, this dude, Baby Keem, came out of nowhere, and he, he really dominated. He had his uh, The Melodic Blue album, and that was one of the best albums of the year. And honestly, when I look at a guy like Baby Keem, I don't – necessarily like that style of rap where it's and it's just like it's almost I don't know I don't vibe with it enough but Baby Keem gives me that style of rap and I vibe with it yeah I Baby Keem is one of the few people that I was familiar with on this list and I have to say I actually really like his music yeah me too I, I like him and you know something that we were talking about off air is this is Kendrick Lamar's cousin, right? So, like, a lot of people consider Kendrick one of the greatest of all time. And Baby Keem, who's only really been big, well, to be honest, Isabel, you know, you called in the big guns. I've known about Baby Keem since his first album to come out, which I can't actually (laughs) say the title of that album on air. Yeah. But, uh, you know, look it up on your own time. It's good good music. It really is good. Uh, I didn't know one song uh, off of his first album so 
I didn't know that much. But even then, I didn't know he was related to Kendrick. And I, you know, here's this one of my SoundCloud underground guys on one of my playlists. And I really like Baby Keem. I think he can do a lot of um, great things uh, following. And I, you know, I like it, but I don't like it. And I want to see what you think, Isabel. What do you think about when an artist, maybe not just in rap, but an artist takes a while to drop their music? Like, they're like, oh. they're not putting out new music all the time. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Most of the bands and groups and people that I listen to, they don't put out music that often. My favorite band has not put out an album since 2011. Mm. So it's sad and it hurts. But I think sometimes art takes time and I... I want the artist to feel they have enough time to produce something great as opposed to them rushing and producing something mid. Yeah, sure. I, I think that I don't like it because, you know, if it's my favorite artist, it's like, oh, my goodness, I just want to hear your music. But in a guy like Baby Keem's case, I get it because he built up all that hype and then just stopped. So yeah. he's basically saying, oh, no, you're going to have to wait. And, and building up the suspense and the excitement for his next album is really something that I think uh, gets a lot of people um, excited in the end, whether they know it or not. You kind of saw it with Ye and Donda, where, like, he hadn't made music since his Jesus is King album. Yeah. And, you know, people weren't really crazy head over heels about Jesus is King. No. And then he just hyped up Donda. And it had been years, and we're like, yay, man, where's where's the music? And then Donda came, and it was big. It was huge. So I think it's always a good thing to do in rap, even though I may not like it now. <laughs> a transition here, Isabel. An artist that does this quite often, hmm. I love him. He was high on my Spotify rap, and he has been for years. I found out about this kid when he was on SoundCloud. Back in 2018. Wow. And now he's making his way. Now, I asked you if you were familiar with XXL Freshman, and you really didn't seem to be. And honestly, that's okay, because XXL Freshman hasn't been big since 2016, but they still do it every year. Essentially, XXL is a magazine, and every year they take the freshman class, and they'll pick 10 rappers, and these are like the next big rappers of that freshman class so this would have been the 2022 freshman class well every year xxl their 10th spot they let the fans vote and they'll take uh, almost a hundred rappers and you're voting for all of them it was always a dream to be the the fan vote when i was when i was performing yeah in in high school i could see that being a dream um it's it's not over you could always revise, revive your career in rap. Sure, and I might. I might. So be on the lookout for that. Oh, but I will be. <laughs> but Baby Tron, he won the 10th spot this year. And I I had never been – I was like a proud father. I was a happy <laughs> uncle. You're a proud father to a Baby Tron. To a Baby Tron. <laughs> I, I like what you did there. Thank you. And, I mean, I, I've honestly thought that Baby Tron is – one of the most talented rappers. I really, really do. I mean, this guy, his punchlines, they actually call him the punch god. Really? But not just because of his punchlines, but because he scams. He oh. he is in 
the category of scam rappers. Okay. Which is basically just rappers that talk about how they um, scam people. And Baby Tron, what he's really known for, one of his nicknames, is he's called the Bin Reaper because of credit card bins. <laughs> so I'll call him the Bin Reaper. And that, that was his – man, that was one of his big albums in 2021, Bin Reaper 2. He had already made a Bin Reaper 1 back when I was a – you know, I had already been a fan. Right. But he, but he made Bin Reaper 2, and that put, started to put people on. Lyrical Lemonade. Are you familiar with Lyrical Lemonade? Cole I Bennett. am, yes. Like Cole Bennett started noticing him. Mm-hmm. And then Babytron made his album called Megatron, and that was good. And then he just made Bin Reaper 3, The Old Testament. That just came out not too long ago. He'll probably make a Bin Reaper 4 New Testament, <laughs> if I had to guess. <laughs> These naming conventions are incredible. Well, He's got a lot of different nicknames. Would you like to hear some of his nicknames? I would love to. I mean, this wasn't the way I was going, but, <laughs> you know, so um, Luca, or I can't even think of his real name. Luca, there's a basketball player. Okay. And Babytron did a wordplay, and he made one of his names Luca Tronchik. Okay. Um, so, you know, that, that one's kind of clever. Um, let's see, let's see some others here. Okay. Um, he's got some good ones. I, I promise. <laughs> he once had an album called Lewis and Clark. Uh, he was Lewis. His, his friend was Clark. Uh, Sleeve Nash. This is a, Nash? This is a nickname okay. they like to call him. Uh, <laughs> kind of like Steve Nash, but no, man. I mean, Babytron. <laughs> what, what's so unique about Babytron? I'll, I'll tell you this. Mm. I understand he's not for everybody. He's, he truly isn't. And he's not just a scam rapper now. I think he's making enough money to where he doesn't need to, he doesn't need to do that anymore. <laughs> credit card fraud, but he'll, whatnot. He'll still talk about it in some of his songs, <laughs> you know. But his punchlines are so clever. Like, he'll literally say something, and he'll be like, oh, my goodness, how did you even think of that? And it's like punchlines like you're not hearing. Like, they're cool. Sometimes they're funny. A lot of people it's like, wow, he's a funny guy. This, this, that was funny. And uh, his punchlines, but the beats he uses, he actually came up. This is how I became a fan of Babytron. Mm. He would take 80s breakdance beats, and he would just rap over them. He didn't, he didn't sample them. He didn't do anything. He just took that beat. Rapped over it. And rapped over it. And even if there was somebody singing on it, like a... He would just rap over it. That's a really good way to show yourself off to different audiences, I think. Well, I I found him yeah. on SoundCloud, you know, and, and uh, I've met Baby Trot, which, really? which was cool. It was one of my proudest experiences in my life. I've been to the Hip Hop Lab, which is where he talks about recording often. I've worked with uh, some of his producers um, that wow. are, are really big. And, uh, and honestly, you know, I talked about um, the XXL Freshman class, you know, a guy that made it. Um, Babyface Ray, and he's a Michigan rapper. This Michigan style is something that you can expect to be big. And honestly, I thought it was going to be way bigger, and I thought it was starting to get big and then, like, fell off, and I was like, oh, well, it never got mainstream like I thought it was. Mm -hmm. But it's going to. It actually is. I'm starting to see it more, so I'm starting to change my mind again. But, yeah, guys like Babyface Ray, Rio de Young OG, RMC Mike, Louie Ray, um, uh, crispy life kid. These guys are really good Michigan rappers. Forty two Doug 
is more of a mainstream name people might have heard. Or T Grizzly, maybe, um, oh man, why can't I think of his name? Sada Baby. Um, you know, people have heard these guys maybe on TikTok and they don't even know it. But these are more of the mainstream ones. But these underground Michigan rappers are really starting to pop off. So I, I can talk about Babytron all day. But uh, I, I just, I'm happy he's got over a million monthly listeners. That's he, great. And the crazy thing about Babytron is his fans. Babytron fans are Feral? insane. Yeah. They're insane. Like, if you ever just give Babytron a good old search on Twitter, you, you'll have yourself a good laugh for, <laughs> for a couple of days. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, you'll have to. So Babytron, definitely a big up-and-coming artist. I, I have no doubt that he'll be on our airways soon. An artist that was also in the XXL freshman list that was pretty big this year would be Nardo Wick. And uh, Nardo Wick had his his big song in 2021 that got his his upcoming Who Wants Smoke With Me? <laughs> Who Wants Smoke? <laughs> Who Wants Smoke? You, have you heard this song? I, I have, yes. yes that, that's Nardo. And then Nardo dropped his album, Who Is Nardo Wick? And that was the question I think we were all asking, <laughs> Isabel. That is, that's the question I'm asking right now, Alex. <laughs> Who is Nardo Wick? Well, he, he kind of, if I had to describe him, he has almost that Chicago style mm-hmm. where he, he raps on the um, the King Von Dirk-esque beats, like that Chicago-style beat, but his voice is almost reminiscent of 21 Savage where it's quieter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the <laughs> mumble kind of voice, and, and I, I like it. I do like it. Um, but the Who Is Nardo Wick album, man, it was good. I remember... Um, the, the big song that came off of there was me or something because it had future and little baby on it makes sense. Uh, but I remember, um, the first Nardo Wick song I ever heard was called wicked freestyle. And when I heard this song, wicked freestyle, I was just, I thought I was going to like give myself whiplash because I was head bopping immensely. I was like, this dude is good. And then uh, he really started to blow up, um, he had a lot of famous TikTok sounds and just a lot of big songs. It was a really good year for uh, Nardo Wick. I like him. I I uh, do you have anything to say about Nardo Wick as well? I mean, well, I do you, have a question for you. Ask what me. kind of listener would you recommend Nar- Narco Nardo Wick to? I mean, Nardo's for the kind of guy girl who's feeling dangerous. You you wake up in the morning and you say, "Man, I'm feeling like." dangerous then you listen, as you do yeah you, you listen to nardo you ever get in that mood where you're like i'm the man i'm the woman i'm the i'm this i'm that you're prideful you you feel you feel you're the head honcho the the head of the table maybe i think that's nardo wick i mean i honestly he puts me in that mood um but i would say you know if you're a fan of the chicago style of music that king von dirk um type beat and uh, you like maybe somebody who's a little more mumbly, and you like somebody who raps on just a hard beat. I mean, I something that I love in a beat is a, just a heavy 808. A boom, boom, boom. That just gets me so, so hype. So when I turn on a Nardo Wick song, even if I really don't like the rapping, I just know I'm going to like the beat. Yeah, So I would, can't go wrong. You know, definitely somebody who likes that Chicago style, somebody who's feeling a little on the edge, maybe. Gotcha. Okay, thank you so much. Yeah, now, polar opposite rapper <laughs> yeah, yeah, would be Jack Harlow. Now, Jack Harlow is somebody who really had a big come up this year, and I think it's funny. I don't know what 
just another, um, you know, quick flex. But I've known about Jack Harlow since the Sweet Action album, which was like one of his first albums. I did. I was hip, been hip. Um, <laughs> you know, it's it's SoundCloud. If you're not, if you're really, really solid rap enthusiast, you're on SoundCloud because you're finding out about these guys before they even get up to their their rising rapper uh, here on yeah, WCIP on Entertainment. So, yeah. but uh, a lot of people, his his. His big thing is they said, oh, man, he's just a one-hit one hit wonder. He's just got a couple one-hits. And, uh, well, he said, oh, you guys this think, you know, Tyler Harrow and uh, What's Poppin'? That's all I got. Hold my my tea is what I'll say. <laughs> Hold my drink. That's what that's what Jack Harlow said. And, and he came out hard this year. I mean, he had um, Industry Baby, Lil Nas X. Right, that big, song's incredible. Big song, and then he had um, the "Come Home, the Kids Are," "Come Home, the Kids Miss You" album. Yes, and hmm, big songs, first class, Dua Lipa, Nail Tech. You know, there's some gems on there. Overall, not it, my favorite album. Yeah, I'm good. I do want to say I was familiar with Jack Harlow beforehand, mostly because of Will Nas X, mm-hmm. and. I, I thought he was good on Industry Baby, and then when he came out with um, Come Home, The Kids Miss You, I was disappointed. Mm. I, I wasn't a huge fan of, especially First Class, that like song. Like a First Class. <laughs> it, I liked it because I, I heard it when it was a snippet, Yeah. but what I didn't like is when it came out, and then there was like the verse on it. It just didn't it hit was, the same. Yeah. It just was not a good verse. Um, yeah, like, I I feel like Jack Harlow's the opposite of Babytron. You said Babytron has, like, these cool lines. You could tell he's a funny guy. Jack Harlow, I feel like he struggles to have funny lines. <laughs> like, he needs some help with that. No, for sure. I think that Jack Harlow, I remember, oh, man. I think he did, oh, maybe it was the song what's poppin and he did like a remix and had like a bunch of big rappers on it i i hope that's the right song and i don't sound silly right now but i remember like i heard his verse on the remix of his own song and i was like oh my goodness this dude is like a wizard that's what i thought i was like man he's good and i haven't seen that same that same sauce yeah i feel like he's not putting his whole energy or self into some of his more recent music yeah i i agree i think that He's still very successful in the public eye. Right. I think, you know, a lot of people like him, his persona. I would say he plays for the Washington Wizards because the dudes has got immense riz. I mean, he, like, every time I see an interview with him talking to one of the ladies, I'm like, man, why can I have that confidence? That Jack Harlow, good eye contact, good, solid conversation i'm like oh my goodness this guy he's a charming young fellow he's he's the kind of guy that my grandma wishes i was you know why don't you why don't you act more like that jack harlow fella <laughs> you know what i mean he's I can, so polite he is he's just he's a good guy but in terms of rap i mean um what's poppin dua lipa industry baby first class like those are sh- he's got more depth but i want to see more from him i want to see more from Jack Harlow. I'm right there with you. I did, before we move on to our next person, I did want to ask you something kind of related to what we're talking about. You said that you heard a snippet of First Class and you liked that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like TikTok has kind of changed the entire music game. 
how songs, maybe they just go for a snippet to be really good as opposed to a whole really good song because they just want that snippet to go viral on TikTok and it just ends up getting streamed more because of it. How do you feel that's affected rap and the music industry as a whole? What's weird, right? Because I think it does it does a lot of good things and it does a lot of bad things. The good things being artists are getting recognized a lot easier. Like, you know, if TikTok would have been big when I was at the peak of making rap, I wouldn't be here right now. You know, I'd be in yeah. Atlanta. I'd be in LA, LA. You know what I mean? <laughs> like in you'd NYC. Be in Houston, I, I just you'd be in Miami. I'd just be on a four. <laughs> four plane trip every day which city which city do i want to be at you know maybe i take a trip to dubai no but uh they they definitely like helps these rappers but you know what i see i see you know rolling loud concerts they'll come out and they'll start rapping their tiktok part and they get to the rest of the song the crowd goes silent they don't know nothing they don't know it and i think that that hurts it and i think overall as somebody who just loves music as a whole i think it hurts the value of the music now there is something to be said about a, a leak because what i should say is jack harlow's first class was leaked so i heard the leak snippet but i i think like even like some tiktok artists that i see trying to blow up they'll like they'll post their one like you know 10 seconds of their song and they'll post it for like a month and then they're like okay the song's out now and i'm like i don't even care to listen to it because you just took too long. Like, yeah. I don't know. So I, I think it's weird. Uh, I think if you use TikTok really well as a tool to become a rap artist and not just to be a TikTok rapper, it can work well. I see that, yeah. That's kind of how I feel. But Thank you. on to the next artist that I want to talk about. Um, I mean... I would count this as a 2022 up-and-coming artist, even though she just barely made made it, you know, because she just had She just kind of blew up. She just kind of yeah. had munch, you know. But Ice Spice. I love, love Ice Spice. I love Ice Spice. <laughs> so I, I really love her. I think she's good. I She's got the one song called Bikini Bottom. I don't know if you heard Bikini Bottom or I've not. I have not heard Bikini Bottom. But it goes... It sounds like it's from SpongeBob. Just, she sounds like she's rapping in the bikini bottom, and I I think it's a, a silly little goofy song, and I like to listen. Uh, even Munch, I I like, and it's weird because there it's been dry with female rappers. There's been a lot of female rappers that turn to pop stars, start as a rapper, turn to pop star, mm -hmm. or it's been Megan Thee Stallion and Nicki Minaj. Like that's genuinely how I feel, and if that offends you, I hope it does because. It's it, wow, it's, honest, it's it's the truth. I I love female rappers. I love Nicki, the Queen. I love Megan the Stallion. Saw her before she was even big in concert. But Ice Spice is that right now. Ice Spice is Ice Spice is Ice Spice is nice. She is nice. Did you like what I, I did, did there? I love that, Alex. <laughs> I, Thank I, you. I, I'm be honest. I just made that up. You got to write that down. That could be a, a verse for you. Yeah. 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 No, Ice Spice is nice. Uh, I I'm excited for her, and I think you know she's doing she's doing some good stuff in rap. I think it's smart of her. I do always say this. I think if you're an up and coming artist, and I know so much, uh, that was sarcasm. <laughs> if you couldn't see my face, but in my opinion, if you're an up and coming artist, you should be 
continually dropping music until you know you kind of have like a fan base truly built so you don't allow yourself to be a one-hit wonder right and that's kind of what ice spice did she dropped munch oh my goodness everyone loves this song i'm gonna drop a few more right mm-hmm. in terms of baby keem i mean baby keem was like had a couple big singles and that was all it took for him to be able to drop an album and run away and you know, go to Hawaii and chill on an island before he has to make another album. Yeah. But uh, I, I definitely, definitely like like what I'm uh, hearing from Ice Spice as well. I do too. She's She's got some good stuff. For sure. I got an artist here that I want to talk about that I didn't necessarily mention to you, but I think it'll fit for the context of what I really want to talk to. And he fits. Yeet. Yeet. The turban. I don't know if you know about Yeet. But number one, he wears a turban all the time, which is, is kind of cool. It's, you know, maybe he'll wear a little, it's like a scarf. You know, it's a yeah, little scarf yeah. I'm turban. I'm familiar with turbans, yeah. And it, it, he's made me want to get a turban. Sometimes I look at Yeet and I say, he looks pretty good with that little Gucci turban on. I, I kind of want a turban. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I like Yeet. Yeet made his big, uh, his 4L album in 2021. And then 2Live, or alive came out he's good he he started you know you have your your playboy cardi-esque beats um the filthy beats wake up filthy you know if you ever heard that tag that's you know you probably heard on a playboy cardi beat but a lot of people cardi's hit or miss because his voice he's like a little you know like high-pitched vampire and i i don't want to hear it you know but yeet Raps on the same beats as Cardi, essentially. But does it well. But he does it pretty good. And, yeah. and I think, you know, it's the style is called Hyper Rage. And I, this is another style I want to talk about. Maybe you're tired of the same rap. You can't find something that fits. Try Michigan rap. There's a whole lot. You can try Flint rap, Detroit rap, Scam rap. You'll find something you like, I promise. Um, or try Hyper Rage. Hyper Rage is a really cool style right now. And Yeet kind of carved the way for artists that i want to talk about like baby santana now known as tana and it's funny because baby santana started blowing up he made a song called anti-social and he was 14 wow so he really was just a baby santana now he goes by tana but um it's that same style his good friend Slump Success, which I th- I just think is well, I'm gonna, I gotta gotta talk about it. I just think it's the coolest rap name. It's Slump, the number six in the letter S. But when you say that out loud, you say Slump Success. Slump Success. It's so it's cool. Brilliant. It's so cool. It really is. But uh, that hyper rage style, it's awesome. I don't even know how to describe it. I, it's like an alien war. Like an intergalactic war is going on. Okay. And then people are just rapping over it. That does sound really cool. With a lot of auto-tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I really like it. I do. I like it. I think a lot of people hear words like auto-tune or mumble rap, and they instantly turn it off. Negative negative mindset. I say why, you know? Because uh, half of music is, is the instrumental, first off. So you can always... I always say, you know, my, my one of my best friends, he's a producer. He is the reason if a song's good or not. Because you won't, it doesn't matter how good the rapper is, you're not going to want to listen to the song the if the beat's not uh, catchy. Yeah, you yeah. want to hear a catchy beat. That's what that's what makes you bop your head. That's what makes you keep the song on, you know. 
Uh, so I think the instrumentals on these songs are really good, but autotune, every artist uses autotune. Even your favorite singers, spoiler alert, Adele fans, Taylor Swift fans, Harry Styles fans, Kelly Clarkson fans, I don't know, Dua Lipa fans, all of them. they all use autotune. Yeah. Autotune isn't always a bad thing, though. It's It's been around for a very long time, and... Sometimes it's not even just auto-tune. It's just that they're using vocal effects to help fix certain things in their voice. And, you know, that's considered auto-tune. But it's not like they sound like Travis Scott all the time or they sound like T-Pain. That's not what that means. Um, so I, I think that's fine. In in terms of mumble rap, mumble rap was like Lil Pump, right? Every, everybody kind of thinks Lil Pump, Smoke Perp. Those are like the two guys I think of anyway when I hear mumble rap. Yeah. And... That's not really what mumble rap is. That's just what Smoke Perp and Lil, Lil, Lil Pump <laughs> was. That's just what they were. Right. But, like, mumble rap as a whole really is just a style of rap. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, Lil Yachty is one of my favorite rappers. He's considered a mumble rapper. He does not mumble. No. You can listen to a Lil Yachty song, like Broccoli, and you know what he's saying. You know, you can li- yeah. you can listen to his faster songs that are on more of a trap beat. Uh, D to the A. You know what he's saying. Yeah. We have the bust down brothers. Check the rollies out. I mean, you know what you know what he's saying. So I, I would say don't be so negative when you're trying to listen to rap. Not all rappers have to sound like, you know, your Eminem, your J. Cole, your Kendrick, but also not all rappers need to sound like a mumble rapper mm-hmm. with a lot of autotune. There there's a whole wide plethora of rap out there. Right. And I think you know, even there's rap that I don't like. Of course there is. But I think that's the great thing is there's it's really so wide and diverse that you can really find anything like a Slump Success or a Tana or a Baby Tron, which just has such a different style, different beats, and it's all different. Or your Jack Harlow or your Nardo Wick, who are more mainstream. Um, so, yeah, Isabel, I mean, these are, these are a lot of the big rappers that were, like, up and coming. There's some I didn't talk about. There's So Fago, he was on XXL. Uh, there's Kali, she was another female artist that was kind of big on the up and com. Uh, big Scar, kind of big. But overall, good year for rap. And I genuinely think, as well, I'd love to do maybe a mid year update yeah. or an update in a year. Because I, I just, I know, I know, I got this, this six cents about me that I can just tell when artists are going to be a lot bigger. And I know that more than half the artists that I talked about that aren't, aren't already really mainstream will be mainstream yeah, very I, shortly. I encourage our audience to keep an eye on some of these names we've said. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can let us know when they, when they really get big. Something I wanted to ask you, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier. You seem to know a lot about these up-and-coming rappers, kind of underground people. What advice would you give our audience to find underground rappers and kind of how do you gauge when they're going to get big? Well, that's a good question. And honestly, it's not easy. Okay, so the first ever rapper that I found out about before they were big was Lil Durk. And it's funny because I'm not even really a big Lil Durk fan. Lil Durk was a part of a rap group called OTF. Okay. OTF, Only the Family. Only the Family drops an album, and Lil Durk's on it. So I'm able to therefore watch Lil Durk come up. How I find rap, and it's different nowadays because you have TikTok, right? But Mm -hmm. it's SoundCloud. 
I, I think SoundCloud is the way to go. SoundCloud has options where you can actually find up-and-coming artists, but I usually don't even find them through there. I'm, I watch, at least like in my peak of loving music, which I, I don't think, I've had many peaks for sure. But like in one of my higher moments of loving music, I watched YouTube videos where people talked about rappers all the time, and I'd hear this and I'd hear that. And eventually, what you're gonna do when you get into like the SoundCloud verse of music is you're going to hear these styles that you've never heard before. And you're going to either think it's garbage or you're going to think it's awesome. And then when you find the style, you're going to find a million rappers that make the same style of music. That's why it's called underground, you know? So I think the first ever really big underground artist in recent times was XXXTentacion and Ski Mask the Slump God because they were making these crazy songs where they were like, electric guitar beats and it was just like they were like and then they would scream and like it was super it was this florida underground wave of music and look what happened x came out of it there were other guys that rapped and and ski came out of it too so you gotta find these groups it's not easy but if you just go through your soundcloud i know it's it's you know it's not apple music it's not spotify but it's how I've always done it. You know, you're asking how I do it. That's how I do it. Mm-hmm. And I've found, you know, a lot of these dudes on this list that we talked about. Jack Harlow, I knew before his song What's Poppin' came out, which was what put him on the radar. Uh, Baby Tron I knew about. Nardo Wick I knew about. Uh, Tana and Slump Success. They're really not even technically really mainstream yet. Mm-hmm. I would say that Tana is borderline mainstream. But, uh, I, I mean, I found out about them on SoundCloud about – a little over a year ago um so you just you know you're gonna find these guys you're gonna find styles but i would definitely say soundcloud now tiktok helps but i just i i haven't seen where you find an up-and-coming artist on tiktok yet where it works longevity wise i think you might find an artist that starts posting their song on tiktok and you're like oh my goodness they only have fifty thousand followers on tiktok right now and i i love this song and they grow and they grow and they grow but i haven't seen it where there's a mainstream rapper who started from tiktok yet i longevity i have one i can think of one oh boy okay who is it lil nas x was he a tiktok rapper well he his song um the country-ish one old town roads was old town road big on tiktok was that did that get big on tiktok yeah Interesting. In like 2018, 2019. That would make sense. Yeah, and he's the he's the only one I could think of. Sure. But he now no. he's he's huge. I yeah. Mean. No, he's big. He's one of the biggest rappers. Everybody loves. Well, not I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people like Little Nas X. So people with good taste love Little Nas X. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I definitely say SoundCloud's the way to go. I like it. YouTube, you got it. Like for me, I understood very early that i didn't know everything but there's guys on youtube that do and they'll talk about it you find these dudes that you like to listen to and then they'll be like rappers on the radar he's like what they'll say and then you find a rapper on the radar yeah so that's another good way to go about it yeah that makes a lot of sense you gotta seek out that knowledge 100 percent. awesome well thank you so much alex it was great having you on for entertainment yeah, I, I really liked it. I like talking about rap. I'd love to come back on, maybe even talk about some other genres because I like other music 
that's not rap, believe it or not. So, uh, no, I appreciate you having me. It's very fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this edition of Entertainment Rebooted. We are on the radio every Sunday at 1 on 88.1. And you can check out our podcast at Spotify Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible, Podcast Addict, Deezer, Player FM, The Podcast Index, Podchaser, and Listen Notes under the name Entertainment Rebooted. Thanks for listening.